Welcome to Podshipper. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. This week in April plays host to both Weed Day on 420 and Earth Day on the 22nd. The events were both born in the early 1970s. Both celebrate nature and both have people coming together to share what they love. This week, outside an Earth Day event in San Francisco, I ran into Friday Apaliski. What do you do, Friday? I'm a sustainability concierge. Wow. Okay. <laughs> And what's your, what's your tip for Earth Day? What can people do? Think about whatever purchase it is that you're making. Do I really need this thing? Am I buying it from the most sustainable place? If one of your clients who you are concierging for wanted to get some green weed, how would you hook them up? Oh, that is such a great question. Um... In this week's episode, we're going to find out the answer to the question, how green is weed? At the stroke of midnight on New Year's, California will become the eighth state to legalize recreational marijuana. Legal marijuana use may be getting a big boost in 2018. Seven states now eyeing new legislation to legalize both recreational and medical marijuana in the coming year. Nine states, including Colorado, Oregon, Alaska, Nevada, Maine, and Washington, D.C., allow for recreational marijuana use, and 30 states allow for medical use, which means weed is now big business. In the U.S., the emerging legal cannabis industry took in nearly $9 billion in sales in 2017, and that was before California opened its massive retail market. At the same time, the black market continues to capture an estimated $46 billion in annual sales. California's 53,000 cannabis farmers produce about 13.5 million pounds of weed per year. About 2.5 million pounds are consumed in the Golden State, and the rest... 11 million pounds get shipped to the rest of the country. What is less understood and very often ignored are the environmental impacts of growing all this weed. These fall into four main categories, water use, energy for indoor grows, pesticides, and waste. In today's show, we'll talk with weed regulators, farmers, and entrepreneurs about how to make the movement greener. First, let's do a quick overview of weed's eco-impacts. Water use. In the Emerald Triangle region of Northern California, made up of Humboldt, Mendocino, and Trinity counties, four watersheds alone supply water to approximately 32,000 marijuana plants, depleting each watershed up to 192,000 gallons per day. That's six times more water than is used daily by all San Francisco residents. Energy use. One-third of all the nation's weed is grown indoors. In California alone, this accounts for about 9% of the state's residential energy use. Nationwide, indoor weed operations use enough energy to power 1.7 million homes, and each pound of indoor weed produces a startling 4,600 pounds of CO2, equivalent to driving your car for six months. Pesticides. Colorado recalled cannabis flowers in October 2015 due to pesticide contamination and required the removal of some 20,000 packages from dispensary shelves. California's situation may be even worse. Steep Hill Labs, which tests cannabis, reported that 85% of the samples submitted for inspection contained levels of pesticide residue prohibited by Oregon standards. 
waste. In 2013, California agencies had to haul away 119,000 pounds of trash, 17,000 pounds of fertilizers, pull down 89 illegal dams, and pull out 81 miles of irrigation piping from 329 grow sites. Since weed has been legalized in California and other states, farmers must now comply with a host of new environmental laws designed specifically for the cannabis industry. As of this month, only 3% of California's 53,000 marijuana farmers have been issued licenses by the state of California. This is a very interesting time to be looking at the greening of weed. We start by talking with Eric Sklar, who is the CEO of Napa Valley Fume, a cannabis management company. Eric is also a Napa Valley vineyard owner and public official. He and his family have been growing grapes in Napa for 40 years, and he has recently planted his first licensed cannabis garden. Eric is the president of the California Fish and Game Commission. Tell us a little bit about the industry itself and and it's huge, mm-hmm. but break it down for us. I come from the wine business most recently, and I would say it's exactly like the grape growing business in, 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 the, in the sense of how it affects the environment. You know, there are grape farms down in the Central Valley that use enormous amounts of pesticides that are poisoning the water, depleting the soil. And then there's Napa Valley where we want wines that don't have any additives because we're seeking the highest quality we possibly can. We're very conscious about our waterways. We've restored the Napa River to the point where steelhead are swing back up the river when they hadn't been for 40 years. So just like the wine business where there's this incredible range, the cannabis business is the same. At the one end, are the illegal grows often run by Mexican cartels uh, that are that are finding little spots in private land or public land, damming up a stream, using pesticides and chemicals that we don't even allow in this country that they're bringing in, and they're poisoning those rivers, and they're poisoning the soil, and they're poisoning the people who are smoking that cannabis. At the other end are people I know who are up in Mendocino who are about this. This is a spirit plant. And they believe it's you know, a living thing that they need to foster like they would their children. They wouldn't dare put any chemicals in the soil. They only use natural fertilizers that they actually make themselves so that they're certain that it's pure. And, uh, and they you know, hand tend these plants. They uh, are, you know, pick the insects off rather than um, you know, use, uh, use chemicals. The good news is, is that part of Prop 64 is that all legal cannabis, all cannabis that's being sold in licensed stores, must be tested by third-party labs. So that is no grower, no retailer can own a lab. These labs have to be owned by businesses that do nothing but that. And every batch of cannabis that goes to the stores or delivery service has to be tested. And the thresholds that they set are far lower than than even for most of our food products in the state. So they're going to have to show that from seed to sale, this cannabis has been tracked and that at some point in the process, when it gets to distribution, it's been tested. So what's your prediction of a year from now? How much of the total market will be legal versus still illegal? What I think is that most of the cannabis sold in California will become legal because I think most people want to avoid breaking the law. They want to make sure it's clean, and that's going to be a way they know it's clean by not buying it on the black market. What's going to happen with the illegal cannabis is most of it's going to be shipped out of state. So the, these, the, the cartels aren't going away until we have national legalization. And how are you making the migration from vines to cannabis? So again, because of my bias as a grape brewer, where there's just no question that the soil and the, and the microclimate makes an enormous difference in the quality of the wine, I'm starting with outdoor growing. Now that you're migrating into cannabis, do people like, oh my God, Eric, what are you doing? So a year ago, I probably wouldn't have mentioned it at all. Overall, it's, it's, it's eased up. I had a conversation with a guy who's you know, probably in his uh, 
early 70s, real country club Republican kind of guy. I told him that I'd stopped. I, I, I'm no longer making wine while I'm entering the cannabis business. And he didn't even jump. He said, tell me about that. And so I think that the, the mood has changed enough that, that it really isn't that big of a deal. California divided the oversight responsibility of cannabis cultivation and testing to a number of agencies who are credited with working together to regulate the weed industry. The Bureau of Cannabis Control is the lead agency in regulating commercial cannabis licenses. The California Water Board oversees cannabis cultivators taking water from streams, creating illegal dams, draining wetlands, leaving hazardous waste at abandoned sites, and illegal clear-cutting of forests for grow sites. I met up with Chris Kerrigan, who is the Chief Enforcement Officer for the California Water Board. Did you ever think when you got involved in this work that you would end up being the enforcement entity over cannabis? I did not. Actually, it was quite a surprise and uh, came about uh, in a little bit unusual fashion. But really, once I started getting into it and digging into it, it became natural. About six years ago, we were looking at a sort of a paradigm shift amongst some of the civic leaders in Northern California from a law enforcement type model to a regulatory model. The law enforcement model wasn't providing sufficient protection for water quality and flows in streams that were occupied by endangered species. I remember seeing cannabis growing in national parks and public land. Is this still going on? These gorilla-type trespass grows are still a matter for law enforcement, and they just have to be. There's no way those can be legalized or regulated. You've got the private landowners, and then you have the indoor. Okay. I, th I think those are the three major categories of areas where we'll focus. Tell us about the types of threats um, that marijuana cultivation was having to, to the California environment. Well, the threats are really in two main categories. One is the amount of water that was being diverted or taken out of streams. And of course, that affects the fish, salmon, and, and steelhead, trout that reside in those streams. Um, and then also discharges or the uh, addition of pollutants to those waters from the operations. And we see uh, on the private land grows, the most damaging of those additions is usually sediment from land clearing activities. Is this really that big a problem? It's a really big problem depending on location. We're looking at endangered streams uh, in the North Coast, uh, like China Creek and Redwood Creek, where eight or 10 farms could really have an impact on the amount of water in the stream, especially during the dry summer months when the cannabis needs a lot of water, but there's no supply coming in from rainfall. So you're really seeing streams that were drying up that were healthy before and, and the major culprit was cannabis grows. Or we've seen three to four years in a row where we have uh, streams completely dewatered and that can lead to extinction events for salmon. And so when you meet with a private grow on, let's say, China Creek, and you explain this to them, are they receptive? I mean, how does that conversation go when you're meeting, meeting with folks? It goes three ways. It goes, get off my land or I'll shoot you. Um, it goes, hey, I'm not really taking that much water. And it goes, I would really like to help you and do the right thing. So it really goes three different ways. And uh, so our objective at the Office of Enforcement and on the Water Board's part in general is to sort of weed out, so to speak, those who can and will cooperate and incentivize that type of behavior from those who can't or won't. 
So what about the third category of person? You, you drive up their driveway, they've got the shotgun, they're like, get off my land, Chris, now. So this is where we use our enforcement tools and what I'm usually used to doing. We issue fines and civil penalties of up to $10,000 per day of non-compliance. We can go on their land and clean up nuisance conditions there. We can get warrants for doing that. We can get injunctive relief from courts to compel them to stop diverting water or stop discharging wastes. What kind of pesticide and herbicide application do you see in a normal grow? Pesticides are an issue for us, for sure. We do see problems associated with pesticide application. If we can educate people on best practices, I think we can make significant progress there. There must be a lot of folks that are just used to the kind of doing operations under the, the cloak of darkness. And, and I, I don't know how you'd characterize it, but it seemed like a lot of people wouldn't want to visit from you still. That's absolutely correct. I think what we've been trying to say is we'll help you do it. We'll help you learn how to do it, but that, you just don't have a license to pollute. And, that, and that's the way it's going to go. So what's the biggest challenge of the new regulatory environment? So the biggest problem is, uh, to, for now, is to make sure those who are incurring the costs of regulatory compliance are getting rewarded because their product is not being undercut in the market by black market. How would you describe your enforcement priorities in the year ahead? Where are the areas that you're going to focus your efforts? We've identified three to five priority streams where we think we may have extinction events. We'll have serious amount of water uh, consumption uh, problems and potentially sediment discharge problems. And we're going to go out and inspect every facility in that site. We'll probably issue a lot of fix-it tickets. We are going to expand next year to other areas of the state, but this will happen on the Central Coast, the North Coast, and the Northern Central Valley this year. Someone who has a lot of knowledge of the areas of California that Chris will be visiting is Mikey Steinmetz, who founded Flocana in 2013. Mikey partners with farmers in Mendocino and Humboldt counties in California's Emerald Triangle who produce sustainable, sun-grown cannabis. When the legalization of recreational weed was put on the ballot in California in 2016, voters restricted licensed cannabis farms to one acre in size so that small-scale farmers could get a head start. However, new regulations now allow farmers to seek an unlimited number of small farm licenses, opening the market to big ag. I think there, there's a big risk that big ag will take over and we'll go by, you know, the same traditional path that humanity has gone down before with traditional agriculture or industrial agriculture. And at least in California, unlike any other states, we have a very unique uh, ecosystem of farmers. In cannabis, we have a massive production, right? From this Emerald Triangle region, there's about 53,000 cannabis farmers that are collectively putting out between 60 to 85% of the cannabis consumed nationwide. And what's unique about their lifestyle and their way of doing it is that, you know, prohibition kind of forced them to go out in hiding, right? Forced them to go off grid, forced them to go off of the main cities and the main roads. And they're kind of living just totally off grid lives, sustainable with solar panels, rain cannabis. Uh, diversified farming practices where they're growing their own soil. And I think what's really beautiful is that you see the cannabis plant next to tomatoes and cabbage and uh, sunflowers and strawberries and other kinds of berries. And it's, it's, it's really an, an agricultural crop and it belongs in this bigger, grander farm ecosystem. You sound like 
an environmentalist, Mikey. I, I really do feel that Flow kind of really isn't about weed. I, I really do think that this is a, a movement around the environment. It's a movement around developing a new agricultural model that benefits the many and benefits the planet rather than the few. You know, I think this this crop has the potential to overturn, you know, alcohol and tobacco sales. It's going to be a massive, massive industry, and the implications and ramifications for humanity are huge. So where your weed comes from, yeah. I don't think is a question that many people have been asking. Yeah. Why should they ask it? I think it's hypercritical that people are very conscious of where their dollars are spent and what they're consuming in their body. I would invite them to ask themselves the question every single time they pick up a product, you know, where it was grown, by whom it was grown, and how it was grown. Those three questions are hypercritical in the end result and the end value of the product you're going to be getting. I mean, you're, you're, you're intaking everything bad that's going into that cultivation aspect. And now a word from our sponsor, Design Crowd. Puff the magic dragon, live by the sea. Once I settled on the name Podship Earth, I began to think about how to create the world's best logo. For years, people have thought the secret to creativity is a little puff of the magic dragon. Martha Stewart claims to be able to roll a very mean joint, not to mention Willie Nelson. I think, you know, it, it calms me down. Yeah. And I used to drink a lot. I used to smoke a lot of cigarettes. And, of course, Snoop Dogg. How would I do all this in five hours, you ask? I smoke five blunts an hour. And even President Obama. I have to ask this question. <laughs> Remember, Senator, you are under oath. Did you inhale? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I was, I was telling somebody asked this question. I said, uh, that was the point. Hikers on the Pacific Crest Trail went through pounds of weed from Mexico to Canada, and when I returned home to my new life of podcasting, I thought maybe that was the trail magic I needed to get the inspiration for the Podship Earth logo. Turns out there was no need for Pineapple Wonder or Mendo Berry Kush or Dos Rios Headband or any other awesome name for weed because... I'd found Design Crowd, a site that lets you crowdsource logos, websites, print, and graphic designs from professionals worldwide. I ended up with a kick-ass logo thanks to Design Crowd. It was simple. I just went on the website, put in my project ideas, and within a few days, I received over 100 logos from designers around the world. My mind was expanded, and I was taken in new directions without the help of any additional substances. With Design Crowd, I was able to communicate with the designer, Kent from Art Tank, and had peace of mind knowing I could get my money back if I didn't like any of the designs. So, before you head out to the smoke shop for a new bong, check out designcrowd.com. It's where I found the inspiration I was looking for. Go to designcrowd.com slash podship and save $100 when you start your next project. That's designcrowd.com slash podship, or simply enter the discount code PODSHIP when posting a project on Design Crowd. I love how the PODSHIP Earth logo turned out and I have Design Crowd to thank. Try Design Crowd today and set your mind free. Now back to our greening weed journey. I drive two hours north of San Francisco to visit with small cannabis farms in Mendocino that are dotted throughout the rolling hillsides. I navigate along unmarked, winding dirt roads that are lined with coast live oak, madrone trees, and manzanita bushes. The air smells so fresh. I'm traveling to meet three farmers to learn about their work to grow what they describe as beyond organic weed. The first farmer I meet is Johanna Mortz. If 
I worked in a dispensary in Los Angeles. I only asked myself, like, what did it look like? How did it smell? Um, and what did it do to me? Never where did it come from? How was it grown? And what is in it? When I moved up here and started learning about cultivation, my mind was blown. What were you witnessing in terms of the environmental impacts of the cannabis cultivation that you saw? I still see like the horror stories, you know, of the people uh, bulldozing hillsides, using pots, uh, pouring nutrients and pesticides um, in them and it running into the water, uh, it, it ruining the water, the fish, um, the environment. I, I hear all of the horror stories of how, how some of the people have chosen to cultivate cannabis um, and it it saddens me because there's no need. There's no need. Next, I get introduced to Micah Flaus, who is Johanna's partner. Micah, what's it like being a weed farmer in 2018? It is hard work being a cannabis farmer, and it's getting exponentially harder as the regulations get implemented and the new market kind of develops. And I think the the work is changing. It used to be very physical activity, and I used to spend a lot of time outside in the garden, and now lots of paperwork and tax schemes. We as regulated operators would like to see the black market go away, but we're not going to turn in our neighbors, so we need to figure out a system together with the government that doesn't encourage the black market and the illicit activity. We can really set a very high bar for the next century and see if we can kind of pull back some of the issues that we created last go around. I drive further into the Mendocino Hills to meet with Cyril Guthridge at Waterdog Farms. Did you notice the wildflowers on the drive-in? Yeah, stunning. How long have you been farming? Well, we've been on this property for five years and I've been cultivating cannabis since 2002. Um, and 16 years. Correct. Yeah. And um, it it really started with um, just the love of plants in general as a child. It really starts with the soil for us, and we just happen to be growing um, amazing medicinal plants in the soil. Um, but the foundation of what we do is, you know, soil health, land restoration, creek restoration, forest restoration, and just good land stewardship. And then cannabis. And then, you know, cannabis has actually been the subsidy that's been allowing us to do this. And what we've learned is the more diverse your garden is, the better your cannabis is going to be. You seem pretty off the grid up here. What kind of fertilizer do you use? We start with the horse manure. That goes to the chickens. Once the chickens compost it, that goes to the worms. Once the worms are done with it, it goes out to the farm. And so we're... And that's the only input you have? Uh, the horse... Um, we do have some inputs but very little. So I think it's important to switch over to some science um, to just work smarter because our whole method here is using nature to make nature better instead of hands off and just kind of let the cosmos take a place. And, and so, you know, what you're seeing here is basically a permaculture inspired little ecosystem. Back at Polyculture Canyon, Johanna agrees that less is more. We kind of model after the redwood forest. You know, there's nobody out there feeding those trees. They do, the mother nature does a great job. It's a, a miraculous system if we just let it be. We use water only, so we feel like we just kind of help support what the cannabis plant can do naturally on its own. Is it harder to grow weed 
greener? Is it like what? What's the big difference? We as humans have overcomplicated things. This cleaner, greener way really allows for human input to be far less, and and no bottled nutrients and no you know pesticides, which I hear you know can run you hundreds or thousands of dollars. And so, I think it's a much more cost-effective. Um, sustainable method. So obviously your grow is entirely outside, powered by sunshine. I definitely think if you're uh, at all concerned with global warming or our planet or your carbon footprint, um, that you would choose sun-grown over indoor. Um, the comparison is just, you know, that we don't use electricity or energy. We use the sun, which is free. And it not only is it free, but it produces a much bigger and greater array of light. Back with Cyril Guthridge at Waterdog Farm, I ask him how many other weed farmers are thinking like him. You know, I'd say a majority of the of my network thinks like this. Um, a lot of the people that we we work with in our distribution company, um, they also are thinking this way. And to me, it's a way to really lower our costs. What I'm seeing today, which is kind of cool, though, is like if you care about the environment, if you care about restoration in a place like Mendocino, by getting right water dog weed, you're actually helping. That That's the crop that's affording you the opportunity to do the restoration. So it's almost like membership of an environmental organization. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. And I, And what I really think is, this needs to be happening across the planet. And if people have another subsidy that's gonna allow them to do that, I think that's great um, because I just don't think everyone wants to grow cannabis where they're at. What are we gonna see next? Well, um, let's go walk over here and we'll look at some just medicinal herbs that are growing. Um, we got some goji berries over here. Um, that's a pomegranate. Let's walk this way. And so as a consumer, when they go to the dispensary, why should they care? Well, they should care because the, the cannabis is going to be of a higher quality. There's just a big difference in um, methodology. So you could have a bulldozed terrace with smart pots growing a monocrop of cannabis, or you can have a diversified farm growing over 100 different species of plants that are going to be growing better cannabis for the consumer at the end. And so that's, a big, that's a big difference. You seem really happy doing it. Oh, there's nothing I'd rather be doing than working out in this on this property, growing and stewarding the land and, and living this lifestyle. Talking of lifestyle, I asked Johanna about how her life has changed since becoming a weed farmer. Um, it's been it's been a roller coaster for sure. Um, it's been a rather amazing like personal journey. Um, when I learned the cultivation side, I really felt connected to the cannabis plant in a way that I had not felt before, um, as well as, you know, my daily commute is I walk into my garden as opposed to spending four hours on the 405, so better for my health. Um, I imagine more so raising a family up here, community that I've met up here. Um, the people, the lifestyle, 
I, I wouldn't have imagined this five years ago, but I would definitely not trade it for the world. Now that we've heard from the farmers, I checked back in with Mikey to understand what it's like to be on the cutting edge of the green weed revolution. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what makes California so special, right? It's that pioneering spirit. It's that sense of adventure. You know, I think it's the state that kind of brought us, you know, Alice Waters and Steve Jobs, right? The pioneers of like the good health food movement and like the innovators of technology. And I think California has that intersection of tech, you know, Silicon Valley capital and this new model of agriculture and cannabis and bringing those three together is a powerful combination. And then most recently we bought this old and abandoned winery, which we're repurposing to do a centralized processing center that's in Mendocino. As luck would have it, I got to visit that very processing center and talk with Kelly Weaver about her job. Kelly, what are you working on now? Right now I'm dropping various sized various weights of cannabis into a combination scale called a precision batcher that can each hold a piece of cannabis. Then it combines them all to make exact precise batches within a certain range. This batch is making eighths. And when you're out with friends and family and they're like, so Kelly, what do you do? What do you answer? I'm a can of batcher. Nice, a can of batcher. I love that. Mikey. Thanks for letting me see the inside of that warehouse. Do you think that you can help change not only the cannabis industry, but the entire way that agriculture on the planet is operated? Yeah, well, I'm psyched that I, that question gave me the goosebumps. I think that's that's the naive dream or the naive hope of this company is that, that we can you know not only build a new model in agriculture for cannabis, but that that could have implications for agriculture, broadly speaking. And you know the, the farmers are really the, at the core, the inspiration of Flocana, right? They are at the core environmentalists. And then second, they're cannabis growers. And the cannabis allows them to protect the environment, to, to build an ecosystem that actually is you know, uh, you know, giving back rather than taking away. Since it's 4.20, I thought I'd go and check out how the local weed dealers are taking legalization. So where are we at? We're in San Francisco, California, Golden Gate Park, where all the weed heads are. We smoke a lot. I am the one and only Mr. Smoke-A-Lot, Juju. You feel me? <laughs> so how's business these days, now that it's been legalized? How are you doing? Fuck legalization. That's my answer to that. How do you find out, like, how green the weed is that, well, honestly, that you sell? Well, honestly, to answer that question, honestly, the only way you would know what's in your weed is if you grow it. I grow my own. I like to deal with organic marijuana, which is grown naturally, period. You feel me? And so when I say naturally, sunlight, we don't use pesticides, no chemicals, no additives, none of that stuff. Everything we use comes from the earth. I like gardening, so I went to get myself a cannabis plant. Juju said it was a good idea. I thought I'd try it out. These are also called clones because their genetics have been tested, which is a little bit weird. Anyway, as I'm waiting, I start talking with the person in the queue. What's your name, sir? Aldo. So, Aldo, what, what, do, you, what do you want to buy today? Well, I was looking for clones because I kind of messed up my last batch. I put too much nutrients on them, and they kind of stunted their growth. I went through the whole... Um, gallon of it and the guy's like no this is supposed to last a year and I'm like oh god it was two weeks okay wow so <laughs> I think I'll stick to getting organic weed from Flocano or other certified companies the weed from Juju the street dealer could come from anywhere and to be honest although I like the idea of getting a plant I'll never have as green a thumb as the farmers I met with up in the Emerald Triangle thanks to Friday Apoliski 
Eric Sklar, Chris Kerrigan, Mikey Steinmetz, Kelly Weaver, Johanna Mortz, Micah Flaus, Cyril Guthridge, Mr. Juju, and Aldo for helping us understand the weed industry from the inside out. And a big thank you to Kate Powers, who made the road trip to the Emerald Triangle possible and fun. Today's show really opened my eyes to how big the weed industry is right now and how much larger it's going to get. We are at a critical juncture. One path leads to healing the planet by encouraging sustainable cannabis cultivation. The other path leads to big ag and the pesticide industry grabbing the reins. As consumers, we can decide that future. If you care about the earth and live in a state that has legalized weed, never buy from the black market. If you care about the alignment of 420 and Earth Day, always make sure to purchase sun-grown organic cannabis. And here's the thing. Legalization is working. It's requiring testing. It's bringing regulators together with farmers to help the environment, and it's creating certainty for consumers. Once the federal government moves out of the way, the drug cartels will also vanish. The work of the three farmers I met in Mendocino was inspiring. They are engaged in restoring the land, streams, and forests. They are environmentalists first and weed farmers second. Weed is their way of funding native habitat restoration. What an amazing model. The way we view cannabis is changing. Grandmothers are now using cannabis cream to ease the pain of arthritis. A cannabis extraction called CBDs are now helping kids prevent seizures. And during these trying times, it was so wonderful to see the most diverse crowd I've ever witnessed for any event show up to celebrate 420. It turns out there's a lot the environmental movement can learn from the normalization of weed and the community that supports it. What I took away from this week's episode is that the world of weed is positive. People feel connected to each other and to the plant. In many ways, as I sat on Hippie Hill in San Francisco watching 40,000 people light up, it felt as if 420 had eclipsed Earth Day. By cultivating a vision of the future that is intimately connected to healing the planet, the weed movement has given everyday people something to believe in. In next week's episode, we focus on why there is still 1 million people in California who don't have access to clean drinking water. Please like the Podship Earth pages on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, editor Rob Spate, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and me, Jerry Blumenfeld, have an excellent 420 and Earth Day week. <laughs>